go through excessive penance or contrition or repetitious apologies in order to gain God's perfect, absolute forgiveness. All that God requires of us is that we admit or acknowledge to Him the sins that we have committed. That's it. It's, very, it's a very simple procedure. And the result is that we are instantly forgiven of the sins that we do confess, and we are cleansed or purified of all unrighteousness. That includes the sins that we didn't know were sins, the sins that we had forgotten we've committed, whatever it may be, at that moment in time, we are purified and cleansed, restored to fellowship with God the Father. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can then resume our forward walk by means of the Spirit towards maturity in the spiritual life. So let's begin with prayer, a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are in fellowship, and then we'll go forward. Father, Your grace means that You have done everything and that we do nothing. Your grace means that You have done all that is required. We can add nothing to it. Your grace means that everything we have is a free gift and all the good things that we have in life are from You. And Father, we thank You for that. Father, above all, You have provided us with eternal salvation that is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to Your mercy. And then you have given us a vast array of spiritual assets which enable us to live the Christian life, to grow to maturity, and to serve you while we are here on earth. And what a fantastic privilege that is. So now, Father, as we look at your word and we study the importance of being oriented in our lives to your grace, uh, pray that you would help us to understand these things, apply them in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 2. While we're, we, we've got new sound equipment, we, we're doing new things. So John, I want you, because I'm wearing the mic over here, I want you to be sensitive to that sound. I don't want to come up with a really soft tape on this. Uh, we're just trying that after comments from Sunday. See how this works. Okay. Always checking things out. James chapter 1, we're in the paragraph beginning in verse 9. We stopped towards the end of it last week as we prepared to look at the doctrine of grace orientation. So we need to, uh, let me see, just review, read over this again. I need to find where I am here in my notes and then we'll go forward. Okay, but let the brother of humble circumstances... Glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now there are a number of bad elements to this translation which we have to correct because they make it sound as if God has a problem with people who are wealthy and that the people who are wealthy are just uh, going to have serious problems in life, but it's really the poor person that has uh, a glorious position. And that's not true. That's due to uh, mistranslations of the Greek and misrepresentations of the Greek in the English translation. 
It begins, let the brother, let the fellow believer of humble circumstances, and the idea here is, uh, expresses the idea of poverty, but money is used, as I covered last week, money is used here simply as an example, one of many examples of the various details in life that people focus on for happiness. Remember, one of the major themes of James is happiness. We saw it back in verse 2, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We're going to see it again in verse 12, blessed or happy is a man who perseveres under trial. Notice the similarity in those two verses. They serve as, as mirrors at the beginning and the end to, to encapsulate this entire thought that true joy, true inner happiness is not based on circumstances, people, or events. True joy and true happiness is based on what's in your soul, not on what is on the outside. And when we encounter various trials and tests, adversities throughout our life that are going to take away whatever details of life we may enjoy, we may even be basing our happiness on, then we learn to rely upon God and to put our focus on that rock that never shifts, never changes, so that we can have a, a, an eternally immutable basis for happiness. So we have all kinds of details of life. We look, for, look to family, friends, success, money, the things money can buy. Uh, we look to relationships, look to marriage, sex, uh, we look to uh, sports events, perhaps, uh, all kinds of things that are details of life. We look at, at living under certain circumstances, our, our home, our house where we live, our dwelling place, uh, education. All of these things are details of life that we focus on as being the source for our happiness. And the comparison and contrast in these three verses is between the Christian who has an abundance in one or more areas of the details of life versus the believer who is absent any of the details in life. That is the humble believer. The humble believer is the one who is absent minus the details of life. And the wealthy believer is the one who has many of the details of life. It may be family, it may be friends, it may be success and career, it may be uh, a house, it may be his lifestyle, whatever it may be, it, he has it in abundance. But we are not to put our focus, we're not to glory in the details of life for happiness. The believer who lacks is to glory in his high position, that is his high position in Christ. At the moment of our salvation, we are entered into a permanent relationship with God and Jesus Christ. We are in Christ, the Scripture says, and this is an eternal relationship that can never be broken and can never be removed. Once we enter into that, at that instant of our salvation, God the Holy Spirit gives us 40 different things that are ours. These encapsulate all of the spiritual assets and provisions that God has given us. They include things like our ambassadorship, our priesthood, the fact that we are 
adopted into the family of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. Various passages you can look to on this that we looked at last week are Romans 8.17, Galatians 4.6 and 7, and 1 Peter 2.9. So we are to glory in our high position, and our high position is our position in Jesus Christ. But the rich man, the one person who is has an abundance in the details of life, he is to glory in his humiliation. Now, humility is a critical aspect of what I call grace orientation. Now, grace orientation, this is about where we left off last week. Grace orientation, let's start with this word. To orient means to line up with, to align. And the first time I think I really started to understand this word was back when I was... uh, doing some compass orienteering where I was in ROTC and they would take you out in the middle of nowhere and you had a topographical map and a compass and you had to line up the map through the various topographical features you could see as well as orienting it to... uh, Boy, the flies around here are slow. Uh, As well as orienting uh, the map to uh, true north or and magnetic north and all of those details. And it means to line up with something. And the map in that instance is you take a map, and maybe you've experienced this when you're out on the road traveling and all of a sudden you're lost and you have to figure out where you are and you take that map out and you have to orient yourself to that map. And that map represents reality. Now, it may not represent reality at that moment as you think it is, and that's why you're lost. But that map represents reality. And in the same way, the Bible represents reality. It may not be the way we like it. It may not be the way we would like things to be. But the Bible represents things as God has designed them and as they are. And we are to line up our lives with the Scripture. And the basic principle we have to start with is grace orientation. Grace is God's policy during man's sojourn on earth. If we draw a timeline here, go back to the beginning when God created Adam and Eve, God did not really have to deal with them in grace because grace is defined as undeserved merit. And remember when God created Adam and Eve, they were both plus R. They had the perfect righteousness of God because they were created in the image and likeness of God. But the moment they sinned, they lost that righteousness and they were minus R. And what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. But the love of God found a solution as expressed through what? Through the grace policy of God. Through grace. Grace was undeserved merit. God began to deal with Adam and Eve not on the basis of who they were, not on the basis of their personalities, not on the basis of their accomplishments, not on the basis of anything attractive in them, but on the basis solely of who and what He is on the basis of His character, and on the basis of His work. And so grace begins with the idea of being undeserved. Undeserved merit. That God is going to deal with us not on the basis of who man is, but on the basis of who He is. And grace towards man comes in two stages. Stage number one is saving grace. And stage number two is uh, post-salvation grace. Saving grace begins at the cross. 
At the cross, Jesus Christ paid for every single sin you and I will ever commit. In eternity past, God is up here and in His omniscience, God knows every single sin that will ever be committed in human history. Now think about that. Every single sin that you will ever commit was known by God hundreds of millions of years, centuries ago. That means the sins that you commit tomorrow, next week, in five years, God knew about them hundreds of millions of years ago. So God's not surprised. You may be surprised and shocked, but God isn't. And His omniscience, He knew every single sin that would ever be committed in the human race, and He poured that out on Jesus Christ at the cross. And Christ paid the penalty in full. Before He died physically, He said, It is finished. That means it was paid in full. It's a Greek word that was written at the end of a bill. Tetelestai. Paid in full. Nothing can be added to that. That means that man is not saved on the basis of his own works. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, that is that salvation through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So there's nothing that man does. Our sins were paid for in full at the cross. Then after we are saved, all we have to do is, accept, is put our faith in Christ alone, and we have eternal salvation. At that moment, we are regenerated. At that moment, we're given 40 things that are ours for all eternity. People who get the idea that they can lose their salvation do not fully appreciate all that God has done for us at salvation. Because to say that we could lose our salvation would be to say that God would be undoing all that He does for us at salvation. When He regenerates us and makes us alive in Christ, gives, creates a human spirit and imparts that human spirit to us, makes us a priest, a joint heir with Christ, uh, baptizes us by means of the Holy Spirit and places us into the body of Christ so that we are one with other believers and one in Christ. When God, uh, the Holy Spirit, indwells us, Jesus Christ Himself indwells us, God the Father indwells us, all of these things happen at the moment of salvation. To say you lose your salvation is to say that all that's removed. That, that's incredible that people would even think that. It's ours, it's paid in full, and now we have to live. And we live, on, again, on the basis of grace. There are two categories of post-salvation grace. There is logistical grace, which is the provision of the basic needs of physical and spiritual sustenance for the believer. Physical sustenance for food, shelter, and clothing may not be what you think it is. It may not be what you expect it to be. But it, God will provide that to keep you alive while you're on earth, and spiritual needs through the teaching of the Word of God. God will provide everything you need in terms of spiritual sustenance so that you can grow to maturity as a believer. Then, as we will see later in James 4, there is the mention of greater grace blessings. These are those advanced blessings that God the Father has for every believer. Now, what happens is back here in eternity past, Adam and Eve are created here, but way back here in eternity past, at what theologians call the Council of Divine Decrees, God the Father in one instant of time, because remember God is omniscient, which means He knows all the knowable. God is 
And he never learns. He never acquires knowledge. He doesn't learn something tomorrow that he didn't know the day before. He has always known all the knowable. And that brings in his attribute of eternality, eternal life. He has always known all the knowable. So when we talk about the Council of Divine Decrees, this is merely a tool for teaching because there never was a time when God did not know what He was going to do and how He was going to do it and what His plan was. And in eternity past, God looks down and He sees every single believer. So we're going to put this one believer up here and God says there are two categories of blessings I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you uh, logistical grace blessings and I am going to give you contingent blessings. But all of these blessings are now locked away and they are yours. That's what he says to every believer. Now, the logistical grace blessings began to be poured out on the believer from the moment of salvation because they're required. But contingent blessings come in two categories as well. Contingent blessings in time. And those are the blessings that God has set aside for you from eternity past to bless you with during your life on the earth. And contingent blessings in eternity. But God does not bless us beyond our capacity to appreciate and utilize those blessings. Nothing ruins people faster than to give them a tremendous amount of money. Just look at what happens to many of these lottery winners. They win $500,000 or a million dollars or $10 million, and two or three years later, they're in debt, they're in bankruptcy court, they've had marital failure, they've had all kinds of problems because they had no capacity to handle the money. And God is not going to pour out upon you your contingent blessings in time or eternity until you are ready. So that's where your volition comes in. If you are positive to God's Word, you will start learning your work, learning God's Word and grow from spiritual infancy towards spiritual adulthood. And as you go through the various increments of growth, then God will then uh, pour out to you your contingent blessings in time and you will begin to use them. But if, on the other hand, you reject God's plan for your life in terms of spiritual growth, and you stay in carnality, out of fellowship uh, with God, trying to live the life, live life on the basis of the sin nature, on the basis of the flesh, then these contingent blessings in time will not be distributed. Now, eventually what happens is you will die. If you're in carnality, you will die the sin unto death, and you will end up in a very miserable, painful death. What happens is when you come down here, this is a, sort of a a flow chart of what happens in the spiritual life that as you go through, as you fail these tests of doctrines, you live under the control of the sin nature right here, you produce sin, human good, and you're in temporal death because you are separated from God your Father and the filling of the Holy Spirit produces weakness and instability in your life, spiritual regression and a hardened heart. And if you get caught up in this downward cycle of carnality, then it ends up in, in absolute misery. When you come to the judgment seat of Christ, there will be loss of rewards and temporary shame because you will not, you will not be receiving your contingent blessings for eternity because you did not grow to maturity to develop the capacity for eternity. 
because every decision you make now with in relation to doctrine and the spiritual life prepares you for eternity. That's what we've been studying under the category of a personal sense of your eternal destiny. What you will be then, you are determining by your decisions right now. Now we come to verse 10. Before we came to verse 10, we look back on this to Matthew chapter 6. And I want to go over that one more time because that's a passage that very few people understand or comprehend. And too often they take it as a salvation verse. And it's not. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now there's a promise there that there's a command, literally, to seek first His righteousness. So we're to seek the righteousness of God. If we do that, certain things will be added to us. What are those things? Well, if you go back to verse 25, you'll see that they are the basic fundamentals of life. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious. For your life is to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? He's talking to the disciples as believers. You see, as believers, they possess the perfect righteousness of God. God is plus R. God cannot have a relationship with anyone who is not plus R. But in our experience, we are minus R. We are born sinners, but at the moment of salvation, God the Father imputes to us from the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So now God the Father looks down on us and what the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God blesses. So here's God. God looks down and establishes a pipeline, as it were, and down that pipeline flow the logistical blessings for the believer. Food, shelter, clothing. Not because of who the believer is. Notice, this is because he is compatible with God at the basic level of the righteousness of Christ. This is not because he has gone out and witnessed to ten people every day, not because he goes to prayer meeting, not because he uh, gives money to the poor, not because he gets involved in uh, every Christian crusade that comes along in order to help people out or to straighten out the country, but because he possesses the perfect righteousness of Christ. This means that even when that believer is in carnality, even when that believer is out of fellowship, and when that believer is in uh, extreme overt rebellion against God, he still possesses the perfect righteousness of Christ. That was imputed to him at the moment of salvation, and it belongs to the believer for all eternity. And it is on that basis that God continues to bless even the carnal believer because they possess the righteousness of Christ. Now that is positional righteousness. There's three categories of of righteousness. At the moment of salvation, we are given positional righteousness. Because of our position in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us and it is ours for all eternity. During the process of the spiritual life, which is phase two, as we go through various stages of growth, maybe it looks like that, maybe it looks like that. Depends on whether or not you're positive to doctrine. As you go through your spiritual life progression, what happens is you develop 
experiential righteousness. That is the goal of the believer's life. You are putting to death the deeds of the sin nature, according to Romans chapter 6. You are doing away with them. You are beginning to live and spend more and more time under the filling of the Holy Spirit and less and less time controlled by the sin nature because you are applying doctrine to life situations. So you develop experiential righteousness, which in turn gives you a capacity for life, liberty, I mean for life and living and for happiness, for loving God. All of these things are yours as part of experiential righteousness. And because you have experiential righteousness, God the Father is then going to begin to distribute to you your contingent blessings in time. Then eventually, at phase three, you are absent from the body, face to face with the Lord in glorification, and here you have absolute righteousness, because you no longer have a sin nature, and we are at that point have the perfect righteousness of God, and we're, we live, and all of our experiences is going to be perfect righteousness. So when we come to verse 33 of Matthew 6, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. This is talking about salvation. This is not talking to the believer in terms of experiential righteousness. Because what is promised are the basic needs of life. And God has promised to supply that to every believer regardless of our position. Now, that's the beginning of grace orientation is to understand for the wealthy, the person who has so much, it's real easy to get your eyes on, your, on the details of life and to become satisfied. But the wealthy, the person who has an abundance in the details of life, needs to glory or boast in his humility. This is humility, is realizing that all that you have is due to God's grace. All you have is not due to your efforts or your works, and that is true humility. True humility, realizing who you are in the plan of God, and that your works are nothing, and that God's plan is everything, is the beginning of grace orientation. So that's the association here. Let the rich man glory in his humiliation because like the flower of the grass, it will pass away. That is the corrected translation. Because like the flower of the grass, it will pass away. And what we have here in the first phrase is the flower of the grass. And the phrase there is... Anthos, put the Greek up here, Anthos Kortu. Now this second word, let me spell it in English for you, A-N-T-H-O-S-C-H-O-R-T-O-U. This is the genitive noun of Kortos, which means um, flower. Anthos means flower. Kortu means grass. So what we have here is, here's a picture of grass, and then out from the grass comes your flower, okay? Pardon my incredibly primitive artwork. This, I'm doing this simply to illustrate a point. There's two categories here. There's the grass, then there's the flower of the grass. The grass down here represents your logistical... Grace blessings. These are your, the basics in life. These are yours because you possess the perfect righteousness of, of Christ. The flower, that's the beautiful, 
extras that you don't anticipate in life. These are all of those details of life that God is blessing you with. So, it's talking here, because like the, gra- the flower of the grass, and then we have the verb, paralusite, which is the future middle indicative, third person singular. Okay, the ending on that looks like this in the Greek, P-A-R-E-L-E-U-S-E. E-T-A-I. Now, this ending here is a third-person singular ending. Now, third-person singular, remember, first person is I. Second-person singular is you, singular. Second-person plural is y'all, plural. Just wanted to see if you were with me. Third-person singular is he, she, or it. Now, if you look at this and you have a socialistic mindset or you're one of these Christians who just don't think Christians ought to have anything, any money, they ought to give it all to the poor and forget that, that uh, people like Job and Abraham and Barnabas in the New Testament and many others were very wealthy, if not incredibly wealthy believers. And God has a plan and a purpose to, to use very wealthy believers and to bless them and they, their wealth is used to support local churches and missionaries and many other things. But it says here, like flowering grass, it's not he will pass away. It's not talking about the passing away of the rich man. It says it will pass away. It referring back to what? It referring back to the flower of the grass. In other words, at some point in time, all of a sudden, all those details in life are going to disappear. Those details in life that you're tempted to put your hope and focus on for your, for your happiness. Let the rich man glory in his humility. Hum, truly, truly, it should be translated in his humility because like the flower of the grass, it will pass away, it being all of these extras, all the details of his life. And then we have a further development of that illustration in verse 11. For the sun rises with a scorching wind. This is adversity in life. All kinds of adversities in life. We have adversities related to job, career, family, friends. Uh, Every detail of life. We have weather disasters, economic disasters, national disasters, military disasters, All kinds of things can come up and they are like the sun that has a scorching wind that destroys everything under it. People down in Texas were familiar with this this last summer, wiped out a vast majority of their crops. Uh, they, They were praying for rain, that rain would bring them happiness and then they've gotten it the past couple of weeks with the tropical storms and now they're praying that it would quit raining. See, when we put our focus on the details of life, we're just never satisfied. We either have it or we don't have it. When we get it, we don't like it. We're not happy. But the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off. Notice it doesn't kill the grass. It just withers it. So what happens? Back up here on our illustration, the grass represents logistical grace blessings. The flower falls off 
and even logistical grace blessings begin to dry up. Maybe that home, that dream house you always wanted and you finally got into and fixed up, you lost your job and you had to lose that house and move into a one-bedroom apartment. You still have logistical grace, but it's withered up. You still have a house over your head. You still have plenty of income to supply food for the table, but it's not perhaps as sumptuous as it was before. So the logistical grace blessings have withered up a little bit and the flower has fallen off and you've lost all of those uh, details of life that that perhaps you put your, your focus on for your happiness. The sun rises with a scorching wind, withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. And then the analogy. So too, the rich... It's not talking about the rich man will fade away. It's the, the, the wealth that he has. It's that excess. So too the wealth in the midst of its pursuits will fade away. That's the point. It's not talking about the destruction of the wealthy man. It's the loss of his details of life. The wealth is gone. All of a sudden, just like the sun rose up and blew away the, the flower of the grass, so too there was economic tragedy and the wealthy person lost those details of life that were distracting him from, from doctrine. So we have to understand at the conclusion here the importance of grace orientation. Grace orientation. Why is that? Let's back up and use our fortress diagram. The real you is your soul, comprised of your self-consciousness, mentality, emotions, volition, and conscience. Throughout life, we're going to face various attacks upon our soul. Those attacks come under the categories of adversity and prosperity. As adversity attacks the soul, when the soul is under the control of the sin nature, the result is stress in the soul. Remember, adversity happens to everybody, but stress is optional. Adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. Adversity is the outside pressure of circumstances on the soul. Stress is the internal pressure that comes from the soul that is the result of yielding to the temptation of the sin nature. The solution are the stress busters. How to avoid stress in your life. Ten stress busters, confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, the faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, aligning your life and your thinking with the Word of God, grace orientation, personal sense of eternal destiny, personal love for God the Father, unconditional love for all mankind, inner happiness, and occupation with Christ. As you begin to learn doctrine, it begins to flow through these categories and it erects a fortification around your soul that protects it from adversity. As you begin to learn the Word of God, then we extrapolate, as we're doing in this study of James, all of these different principles. Already we have seen the importance of the faith rest drill back in verse 6. In the issue of prayer, you encounter adversity. You don't know what to do. Let him ask. Uh, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, verse 5. But let him ask by means of faith. This is the faith rest drill right here. And now we're down looking at the subject of grace orientation. Later on in this chapter, starting in about verse 21, we'll come to the importance of doctrinal orientation. In the next uh, 
Uh, and in this verse, we're looking at grace orientation and why that is important to fortify our souls. So we're going to look at that categorically so that we understand it in all of its manifestations. Point number one, there are two categories of grace in God's policy for mankind. Category one, grace is extended to the believer through the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. In category two, God's grace is extended to the believer through God's plan for the believer's life in the church age. We must align ourselves to the right age in history. Remember, the dispensations are specific periods of time in God's plan uh, for His administration of the human race. The basic divider is the cross. In the Old Testament, there were two basic periods, the Gentiles and the Jews. In the age of the Gentiles, you had the age of human perfection in the garden up until the fall. Then you have the age of human conscience and the age of human government up to the call of Abraham. During the uh, period of the Jews, you have the dispensation of the patriarchs and then the age of Israel. That ended prematurely, seven years prematurely, when Christ came and died on the cross. Forty days after that, on the day of Pentecost, you had the beginning of the church age. The church age is the unique age of human history. During the church age, we have a unique spiritual life that was pioneered by Jesus Christ during His life on the earth. And it is empowered by two means, God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The church age will end when Jesus Christ comes in the clouds and raptures the church to be in heaven. That's followed with seven years, the last seven years of the age of Israel, seven years of tribulation, Satan's big temper tantrum. And that ends when Jesus Christ returns bodily to the earth and wins a victory over Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet at Armageddon. That's the second advent and begins the one million year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. So the spiritual life in the church age is unique. It is a unique life based upon the Holy Spirit. It is not based upon morality. This is what people never get right. And they're very confused about it in the environment right now. The issues that are facing this country right now and the president are are legal, not spiritual. They're legal, they're not moral. Do not be confused. These are legal issues. The issue is, has he committed perjury and is he in violation of the Constitution of the United States? That's the issue. The issue doesn't have anything to do with what took place in the Oval Office. It's what he said about what took place in the Oval Office. Don't get distracted by these issues. The focus is is legal and constitutional. And the same thing is true in the spiritual life. People get all distracted with morality. But remember, anything that the unbeliever can do is not the spiritual life. And any number of unbelievers, from Jehovah's Witnesses to Mormons to many other cults, emphasize a high level of morality. And you will discover, perhaps, that that many of them are much more moral and upright than many believers that you know. Not that the spiritual life is immoral or amoral, but it is not just morality. Anything an unbeliever can do is not the spiritual life. The spiritual life is uniquely empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the Word of God. The Spirit of God plus the Word of God equals the power that moves you forward in the spiritual life. 
That's the issue. Do not get distracted with programs. Do not get distracted with emotions. Do not get distracted with all the other things that come under the guise of religion, like discipleship programs, um, all of the other things that people put the emphasis on uh, that, that rather than the Word of God. So in category in, in point number one, two categories of grace, salvation by grace alone. This is not a salvation that extols lordship salvation, that you have to give up anything for God, that you have to accept Jesus as Lord. The idea of lordship in Scripture is not the idea uh, necessarily of Jesus' uh, authority over your life at the point of salvation, but that Jesus Christ is God. And that as God, he was able, as the God man, he was able to die as your substitute on the cross. In category two, the spiritual life, God's grace is extended to the believer through his plan for the spiritual life of the believer in the church age. Okay, point number two. Category one, which is saving grace, is defined as all that God is free to do for mankind on the basis of the saving work of Christ on the cross. See, all grace is ultimately grounded in one event in human history, the cross of Christ. All the Old Testament grace of God towards, towards Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall, to uh, the various people who lived in the antediluvian period, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the Exodus generation... All of God's grace there was based on what would happen at the cross. It anticipated the cross, and in God's plan, He knew what would happen. And so on the basis of Christ's provision, God's grace was extended antecedently. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, that meant that nothing can be added to His work for salvation. Saving grace, therefore, is totally of God and has nothing to do with human merit, human works, religious activities, or any of the other things that people think will somehow impress God or gain His approbation. Third point under category two, post-salvation grace, is all that God is free to do for the church-age believer on the basis of God's plan for the believer's life. It's all that God is free to do for the church-age believer on the basis of His plan for the believer's life. Post-salvation grace is divorced from any system of human works, human merit, human ability, human behavior, human talent, human emotion, or any form of human power. It's not up to us. It's not based on us. God's plan is not going to succeed or fail on the basis of who and what we are. It succeeds on the basis of who He is and what He has done. And the problem that faces many Christians today is that they're caught up in morality. This was the problem that plagued Christianity throughout the Middle Ages. And when the Reformation came along, rather than doing away with this system of morality, the uh, great founders of the Protestant theology, Zwingli, Luther, Calvin, and others, did not clarify the issue. They were fighting the battle of salvation by grace and did not understand the issue of sanctification by grace. What happened was they were accused, when they started talking about grace, the Roman Catholic Church said, well, if you just think people are saved by grace, then they're just going to do whatever they want to and commit all kinds of sin and live in immorality. 
So they backed up and they said, no, 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 they're saved by grace, but they still have to be obedient in order to get anywhere in the spiritual life. So they kept one foot in grace, but they kept one foot in works, and that's the ultimate root of the whole lordship, salvation, controversy, loss of eternal life, the unwillingness to accept eternal security issues and everything else, is ultimately these people believe that their spiritual life is grounded in what they do and in morality, and they do not understand the difference between morality and spirituality. And they can't answer the question, how do you tell the difference when you're in church on Sunday morning or if you're giving money to missionaries, how can you tell whether that is a product of your sin nature just doing good deeds or it's the product of the, of the Spirit of God? And this, Galatians chapter 5 is clear that the spiritual life is a unique production by means of walking by the Holy Spirit. That's the issue. And how can you tell the difference? What is the mechanic? Now, that word mechanic doesn't mean it's mechanical. The term mechanic is used in all kinds of different disciplines. In fact, I heard a personal trainer use it a couple of days ago in describing an exercise. In many exercises, you have to learn all the basic steps involved in the exercise before you can finally put it all together so it's one continuous flowing motion. Same thing happens if you're learning dance. You're learning any form of athletics. You're learning ice skating. You're learning how to block in football or even how to swing a bat correctly so that you can put 60, 61, 62, 63 home runs over that outfield wall. You have to understand mechanics. You have to break the whole thing down into each separate step and then you're able to put it together in one flowing motion. What is the basic mechanic of the spiritual life? It's 1 John 1.9. Confessing or admitting your sins to God. What happens? See, the biggest problem up here, when you make morality the issue in the spiritual life, then the question becomes, what do you do with post-salvation sins? Okay, you go to the cross and you trust Christ as your Savior, and all your sins up to that point are forgiven, but you come out here and you hate somebody or you curse somebody or you break a law, you murder somebody, you commit adultery, whatever it might be, how's that handled? And throughout the history of Christianity, there have been major problems among theologians as to what to do with post-salvation sins. They bring in penance and contrition and all these other things, all kinds of works, and the issue is simple. Christ paid for everything on the cross. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Christ continually cleanses us from all sin but we are expected to follow a basic procedure, which is 1 John 1, 9, the simple admission of our guilt. By guilt, I don't mean guilt feelings. I mean the fact that we did something. We committed a sin. All we have to do is admit that to God and we are instantly forgiven. That's the mechanic of the Christian life. At that moment, we are filled with the Spirit and then we can go forward walking by means of the Holy Spirit. So God's plan is built on grace. This is not built on our works. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to make any bargains with God that 
we'll never commit those sins again as long as we live, or we're always going to feel sorry for them. Of course, we always, when we do certain things, we always try to beg with the Lord, Lord, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'll never do that again. Don't bring me these consequences. Don't do this to me. If you won't do this, then I'll, I'll never do this again. And we become very humble and very contrite, but that's just because we don't want to go through the divine discipline that we're afraid we might have to go through. But God's grace policy is not based on our attitude, our emotions, or anything at the point of confession. It's based upon what Christ did on the cross. So grace is then the function of the attribute of attributes of God on behalf of every church-age believer as a member of the royal family of God. That means that grace is always the work of God. It flows from His character and His essence. And it is not the work of man. So that brings us to... Point number, where would we be here? Point number four, under the divine policy of grace, everything depends on who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Under the divine policy of grace, everything depends on who God is and what Christ did on the cross. Never, and even the least little bit, on who you are and what you do. It's always based on who God is, His character, and what Christ did on the cross in complete payment of our salvation. Okay, point number five. Under this divine policy of grace, God has found a way to bless the worst of all believers as well as the best without any compromise of His attributes. That is what we call logistical grace. Under the divine policy of grace, God has found a way to bless the worst of believers as well as the best without any compromise of His attributes. That's logistical grace. It flows to every believer, not because of who they are, what they've done, but because they possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. Therefore, point number six, the beginning point for orientation to both saving grace for the unbeliever and post-salvation grace for the believer is humility. The starting point for orientation to grace is humility, realizing who you are in all honesty. As it says in Romans 12, 4, 5, not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Not a false humility that runs yourself down, but a true humility that looks honestly at yourself. Point number seven. Grace is all that God is free to do for each believer and be consistent with His own divine attributes. It's all that God is free to do for each believer and remain consistent with His own divine attributes. Point number eight, the the integrity of God is composed of the perfect and eternal justice of God, the perfect righteousness of God, and the immeasurable love of God. So that we can say, as we've been studying this in detail on Sunday morning that what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God uh, works out or supplies motivated by the love of God and expressed through the grace of God. So then what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns, but the love of God provides a solution as expressed through the grace of God. Then what the righteousness of God accepts the justice of God blesses as expressed through the love of, uh, motivated 
by the personal love of God and expressed through the grace of God. So righteousness and justice and love are integral to understanding the integrity of God. Point number eight, the pattern for grace is established at salvation and remains consistent with all post-salvation growth in the plan of God. The pattern for grace is established at salvation and remains consistent with all post-salvation spiritual growth in the plan of God. That is grace orientation. We have to align ourselves in grace orientation. Grace orientation begins by understanding the salvation and the spiritual life. But that's only where it begins. Grace orientation goes on to extend to all of your human relationships and to provide the basis for unconditional love. Because the unconditional love of God directed toward you and pre-salvation grace and post-salvation grace is based on His grace. His unconditional love is expressed through grace. So we have to understand grace if we are going to have unconditional love towards those people who are not very attractive to us, to people who hurt us, to people who have harmed us, to people who we don't care too much about. They're not the kind of people we would normally have anything to do with. But we can express unconditional love for them, and we don't even have to know them very well. Love is always based on knowledge, but we can have unconditional love because it's based upon the grace of God, who God is, and what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. So grace orientation then becomes a building block for developing the more mature attitudes of unconditional love for all mankind. Now let's go into verse 12. Verse 12 begins, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Perseveres under testing. Now this idea of blessing is the Greek word makarios. M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S. It is a synonym of kara, C-H-A-R-A, which is our word for joy that we had back in James 1-2. Counted all joy when you encounter various trials. Here we have the uh, dogmatic assertion that blessed or happy, this is the basic meaning of the, of the uh, Greek word, happy is the man who perseveres. And here we have the same word we had back in verse 3, hupomenes, who perseveres. Here it's the verb form, hupomoneo, who perseveres under testing. Blessed is a man who perseveres under testing. And let me remind you that happiness is the inner happiness of God is not based on external circumstances, but is, ba- or, but is based on the internal dynamics of doctrine that has been learned and assimilated into your soul and is the basis for your thinking and your response to every situation in life. This is what makarios means. Now, blessing, I find, is always one of those nebulous words people talk about. They'll say, God bless you, and oh, they're so blessed by God. And it always seems to depend on circumstances. That if somebody is... uh, 
has a lot, then they've been blessed by God. If they don't have anything, then they haven't been blessed. If they're cold, then you say, well, I'd be blessed if I'm warm. If you're hungry, you feel like you'll be blessed if you just have a good meal. Whatever it might be, we tend to define a blessing in material, circumstantial, or geographical terms. Come this, you know, this last summer I thought I was extremely blessed because I wasn't living in 100 degree, 110 degree heat down in Texas. We'll see how blessed I feel when January comes. (laughs) But we tend to associate blessing with our circumstances. But the true concept of biblical blessing is based on something that is uh, solid and immutable and can't ever change. Because to the degree that we base our happiness on something that changes, to that degree you make your happiness dependent on that object. If that object changes, then your happiness changes. If that object goes away, your happiness goes away. If that object comes back, your happiness comes back. So one day you're happy, the next day you're not, the next day, and you just go back and forth, and you're totally unstable because the focus for your happiness is not on something that is immutable and unchanging. It's not on God. So we have to, biblically speaking, inner happiness is the result of putting our focus on God and not having it change. Now, it says here, blessed is, and there's no is in the original language. It just says, blessed the man, or happy the man. And the word here for man is the Greek word aner. Now, this is important because normally what we expect is the Greek word anthropos. A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-S. Where we get our word anthropology, the study of man. But this is the word aner. A-N-E-R. Usually it refers to male instead of the female. Sometimes it refers to a human as opposed to an animal. And sometimes it refers to an adult instead of a child. And that's the focus here. Blessed is the spiritual adult who perseveres under trial. The reason I'm focusing this on spiritual maturity is because understanding the dynamics of joy and happiness are not something the infant, spiritual infant, can understand. He's too busy coming out of, a, out of his unregenerate background, still looking to people, things, and events for his happiness. It takes time. It takes a certain amount of doctrine in your soul before you begin to realize that you have to put your focus on Jesus Christ. You have to put your focus on the plan of God and the glory of God. And that when your focus is on that, then your circumstances no longer are the issue. That your happiness is based on something solid. So there's an element here that this word introduces, which is the maturity. Not just being a believer, but for being a spiritually mature believer. And spiritual maturity comes as a result of endurance. This is the verb, blesses a man who endures. Hupa moneo. Hupa moneo. It means to remain. M-E-N-E-O. H-U-P-O-M-E-N-E-O. Meno. Or that's hupo meno is what it is. Let me get my Greek right. 
means meno means to remain or to stay, and hupa means under. That's the basic meaning. When life gets tough, you hang in there. You stay under the pressure. You don't try to bail out of the situation. Normally, that's what we do. We have a tempta- we have a an option to use our sin nature, use human good, use something that gets us out of the situation. And rather than staying under the testing, we opt out for the easy solution, which is usually to yield to the sin nature and try to handle the situation ourselves rather than by waiting on the Lord. So there's an element of maturity here. That's seen, if you look across the page to one three, knowing that the testing of your faith... Same word for trial is here, that the trial of your faith, the testing of your faith, produces what? Endurance. And let endurance have what? Let endurance produce maturity. That word that's translated perfect in your English is the word teleao, which means completion. or It's the noun teleos, completion. Endurance has its completing effects or maturing effects. So the man here in verse 12 is the mature believer or the maturing believer who is persevering under trial, he's enduring, he's hanging in there. For once he has been approved, this is the process as he continues throughout his life, reaching spiritual maturity, and then finally, he's absent from the body face to face with the Lord, and the issue there at the judgment seat of Christ is approval, and he receives rewards, the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And we'll stop there and come back next week and we'll do a study of the crowns and rewards for the believer and then get into the dynamics of temptation in verse 13. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word this evening, for these things that we have learned about grace and how important it is in our lives to be oriented to Your grace, to understand that all that we have is from You. It's on the basis of who You are and what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and not on the basis of who we are or what we have done. Father, help us to understand the dynamics of grace, reliance upon You at all times, that we might grow because we are told that we are to grow by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that God the Holy Spirit will store these things in our soul, that we will be able to recall them at the proper time to apply them as they accrue to our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.